thoughts on best BBC announcer before Quatermass of the Pit voice? Hello. Well, before this episode starts, I really should just point out that it does stray onto some themes that some listeners might be trying to avoid at the moment. I mean, we live in a world of constant news, well, constant stressful news, and I know that a lot of people try to avoid certain subjects and topics that might be upsetting them or distressing them, or even try to avoid the news full stop. I mean, it's not so long ago that I deliberately changed the time on my clock radio by five minutes so that I wouldn't have to start every single day with hearing Donald Trump's crying voice, which I'll admit I found a little bit more stressful than Radio 2 inevitably playing that dreadful remix of Can You Dig It by the Mock Turtles instead of the proper original version. Although that might actually be the close run thing for me. And I know there are a lot of you, because, well, you tell me there's a lot of you, who like to listen to Looks Unfamiliar without knowing what's coming up next. And while I'm not usually a big fan of suggesting that people don't actually listen to Looks Unfamiliar, at the end of the day... It's here for fun and entertainment, and while I'm not averse to tackling difficult subjects, I don't think in this instance it would be fair to just land this unannounced on anyone. So if you're in any doubt at all, maybe set this one aside for the moment. I mean, I thought it was only fair to make you all aware of this, as after all, I'd be a little bit fed up if I was listening to Rahula Stupa, not knowing who the guest was, and Richard said she's probably best known as TV Girl Test Card. If you're looking for something else to listen to instead, then I'm actually going to suggest my Marvel Cinematic Universe podcast, It's Good Except It Sucks, which you might be thinking, oh, I don't really know about Marvel, I don't really like Marvel, not really seen the films, it's not really for me, but it is, because it's actually a series of short and light-hearted movie reviews, not all of them positive, with a lot of familiar looks and familiar guests like David Smith, Emma Burnell, Ben Baker, Mick Wright, Gareth Hirons, and some new names like Ellie Mae Gadsby and Miriam Kent, and in fact the three most recent ones, I'm joined on them by, first of all, Catherine Lowe talking about Thor Love and Thunder, despite the fact that she's never seen the Thor movie, Joanne Shepard talking about Avengers Assemble, despite the fact she's never seen any movie with any Avengers in, and hadn't even heard of most of them beforehand, and James Kure smith who's another new name, joining me for a chat about Sony's recent movie based on Morbius the Living Vampire, which gets really interesting because while we both think that it's nowhere near as bad as people say, it's not exactly a lost classic of the cinema either, and that's not really an easy balancing act to pull off. Anyway, you can find all of them, and lots more besides, at timworthington.org. And now, let's join returning guest Toby Haydo for a chat that, I have to be honest about it, it's mostly about, checks notes, orange bags full of water. Looks Unfamiliar, the show that remembers that the 1983 BBC video Top of the Pops compilation was also released on Laserdisc, which must have been good news for anyone who wants to watch Gillen's cover of Stevie Wonder's Living for the City in slightly higher than standard definition. I'm Tim Worthington, and joining me today to talk about some of the things that he remembers, that nobody else ever seems to, is actor, comedian, writer, just about everything else, Toby Haydo. Toby, what are you up to? Where can we find it? Well, I'm up 
to a bit of traffic wardening on the cobbles of Coronation Street. I'm also up to podcasting on Doctor Who. I do three podcasts, Happy Times and Places, a commentary, indefinable magic, whimsical essays, and too much information, geeky deep dives that are all under the umbrella title Toby Haydock's Time Travels on all of your usual podcast providers. Well, before we get into your choices properly, I just want to go back to your last appearance where you named the number of films you couldn't identify and I think with at least two of them we might now be in the position where you could theoretically deal with too much information on them so what have you found out ah well this was lovely so there was one that was a sort of puppet show featuring classic universal horror creatures and I'd particularly remembered I think there was a wolf man and a creature from the black lagoon and I'd remembered the end where I think there was a white coasted scientist in glasses who was the hero and he started sort of stimming because the suggestion I think the joke was that he was an android too and it was all set on this island and this castle and I caught it one random afternoon and oh I can't remember the title as some lovely people out there found what it was Mad Monster Party Mad question mon- mark that's right Mad Monster Party and actually it wasn't Creature from the Black Lagoon because although it looked like it some copyright dodging thing everything had a slightly different name even though one of the voices was Boris Karloff himself and I think all the other voices were somebody else quite a few people identified that immediately and pointed me to a trailer on YouTube so thanks to them and then the second one which was a short film about somebody in a dystopian future playing an arcade game but the arcade game is a first person shooter but the wheeze is you don't shoot the person because that's the opposite of that's escapism in a world where everybody is shooting each other and at the end it looks like the game isn't working properly and and the guy's about to get the top score and so of course in frustration he gets his gun out to shoot the machine and then of course he doesn't and actually that's the final test that gives him the score and you'll tell me what it's called it was called Arcadia apparently was a Channel 4 film. With Pat Hayward, who was, you know, an actress that did various bits of bobs. Yes, and a few people pointed that out and had remembered it well and my memory of it, I think, had been fairly good. So I was was overjoyed that people actually listened and knew the answers. Hooray. Well, in the case of your first choice, there's never any chance of misidentifying this because this theme tune, once you've heard it again, it's going to be stuck in your head for the next six weeks. So I'm just going to play it and then we're going to say what it is. Absolutely mistaking that there, the theme from the Red Hand Gang. Toby, who were they? The Red Hand Gang, I remember the title sequence as well, because they sort of bounce in from different sides. The cast were Matthew Labortier, and I think he's got a brother called Patrick as well. He's a character actor. There was a, a chap called J.R. Miller who played a character called J.R., which I thought was the coolest thing ever. You could be an actor with 
just initials. With them on your T-shirt. With as them well. on, and, and you're so cool they can't call your character anything other than that name as well. There was a younger boy and a girl. Was she called Jody something? And then there was James Bond the third. <laughs> which seemed like a great gag. And I think in my orbit, there was only Sean Connery and Roger Moore. I don't think I was aware of Lazenby at that time. So, you know, I saw that James Bond the third was, I'm assuming now he was the third in the line of James Bonds from his actual family and father and grandfather. But to me, it seemed like a gag of he's the third James Bond, you know. I was won over even before it had started because the credits and the opening credits seemed cool. Of course, they were kids as well, starring in a TV show. That seemed amazing. And it was the sort of thing that... You know, I, I was out in the countryside in the middle of nowhere and, and you had to make your own fun. So the idea that, you know, you could be a gang of kids who got involved in crime seemed like the most amazing thing ever. As I understand it, there was more than one series, but I only ever saw the same one. And I saw it more than once. It was I think it was on a few times and every time. I know there was more than one Red Hand Gang adventure, but I only ever saw the same one in much the same way as for years. I saw only the same episode of Cheers. Every time Cheers was on, I'd be like, I need to watch this. Everyone says it's great. And it was always Kirsty Alley's first episode. And I think I saw that about four times before I saw any other episode of Cheers because that just seemed to always be the one that was on when I decided to watch it. And this episode of The Red Hand Gang, or this story, were they five-part stories? They certainly had cliffhangers. It guest starred Anthony Zerby. And still, if ever he pops up in anything, I go, oh, it's the guy who's the baddie. And I think they were they eavesdropping on whatever him and his gang were up to. And he seemed quite dangerous. And they, you know, solved crime with baseball gloves and skateboards it seemed to me and that was the sort of thing but because you know so it was American which is quite exciting but they were kids and they had that very very memorable theme tune the lyrics of which were la 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 la, la 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 la. I will also say, I'm sorry to do this to you, but it had something even more annoying and kind of memory burning, which was, as you say, they were serials. They had a recap at the start of each one with Frankie and Lil Bill walking down the street with Frankie playing an ocarina and the tune that went, I'll try and whistle it. again and again and again on the loop and that caused me a lot of irritation sitting exams later (laughs) so i'm just trying to work out when it would have been ah right it was on in america in 1977 and cancelled mid-season because as you say there were three stories there's one about the kidnapped boy being held in what the kidnapper said was a haunted mansion and the red hand gang pretended to be ghosts to rescue him there's one about a stolen jewel from a charity auction stolen by somebody posing as a sports star i think and there was the museum robbery where a chimp been trained to steal this rare car thing from a museum. Yeah, it was shown, I think, maybe once or twice in America. The BBC picked it up in September 1979, initially in the afternoon schedules, and they showed it right through to, like, late 1985, again and again and again. And the really weird thing was, when the internet was kind of just really taking off, and we started doing TV cream and so on, there were American websites devoted to Saturday morning TV in America that all mentioned the Red Hand Gang or something they very hazily remembered and there'd be a comment like for some reason this show seems to have done better in the UK nearly every other web page on the internet is a British one and they all link to the TV Cream oh. entry which reading it now it's difficult to tell these things years later that looks like a Steve Berry effort to me but it's so weird that it was a huge high profile American thing and yet it ended up more popular over here Jolene Newman yes is that right Joanne yeah ah, and I can't remember the name of the Johnny little kid Brogner, I think it was, he was a called. 
I was going to say, I think there was a J in there as well. Seemed to be lots of J's. J.R., Jolie, James Bond. And I thought there was a Johnny Brogner. That does ring a bell. Yeah, okay. It's one of those things that I've been sort of tempted, you see, because it's so easy these days to go and look. But I just quite like the fact that it's there in my memory. In our current age of having everything answered for you, I quite like the fact that the stuff that I don't know that I could look up but have decided not to and just let it remain what it is, is these sort of fragments of little clues of the kind the Red Hand Gang would probably use to solve a crime. <laughs> well, I think one of the reasons is that, as you say, you know, in America, it would have just been another series about American children. And over here, it seemed quite exotic. And it started on the BBC around the same time as Battle of the Planets did, which obviously was Japanese anime redubbed in America. And we'd never seen anything like that before. Yeah. And also, Oscar Keener and the Laser, that really weird, I think it was Czechoslovakian serial about a boy whose father was kind of a Cold War scientist who was abducted and he went looking for him with his pet goose and a sentient laser and I think it had a oh. narration over the original dialogue from Andrew Sachs and so these things really stood out I don't get me wrong I think they were bought in because they were going cheap but they really resonated and I can point to the fact that in Darren Brown's book Tricks of the Mind he idly mentions when he talks about a scale of being frightened of things he has the villains in the Red Hand Gang as one of the gradations on his scale. <laughs> I remember Anthony Zerby being quite, he did seem to me like he was from a grown-up programme. He was, you know, he seemed to be a proper gangster. And in other things I've seen him, he's, because he's in one of the Star Trek movies as a baddie, but, you know, he's a high-ranking Starfleet officer. He's not from the mean streets. But I seem to recall the performance he was giving convinced six-year-old me that he was, you know, generally from the mean streets. You know, he seemed very plausibly gangstery. I think there's something about, you talk about the company it kept, you know, there was the Hardy Boys oh, and yes. Nancy Drew, which all the other kids at school sort of read the books. And I think I came late to just because everybody else was reading them. But I preferred another one called The Three... Oh what was it? it was three lads and again it was an american thing and they were the three detectives or the three the three investigators and so for a while i myself and my friends ollie and tom i wanted us to be you know so i made us up cards you know saying that we were the three i probably called us something else because i, I wouldn't have wanted to steal completely but and, and i was desperate for some sort of malfeasance or you know smuggling to go on you know i was desperate to overhear somebody going blah 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 secret <laughs> weapon or you know, I love the idea of being a sort of plucky amateur sleuth. Those sorts of shows, you know, had the requisite amount of peril, but never enough to make you scared of sort of visceral violence, you know, but enough peril to make it be a bit of an adventure, you know. None of the cast really, well, I say none of the cast went on to do very much, given that they were all child stars in the 70s. I say that Matthew Laborteau was also in Little House on the Prairie, around the time where, this is my memory of it, everyone went temporarily blind in Little House on the Prairie, including <laughs> <laughs> and he's continued to do things since then. But James Bond the Third, who, you know, when I grew up, he was like a comedy figure amongst my peers. You know, you'd always say, what was the programme where it had James Bond the Third as Doc? And he's gone on to become quite a respected art house director and actor. Oh, really? Matthew Lavoche, I must have seen him then in Little House on the Prairie because I was aware that he was in quite a few other things. And he I'd was also with kids. Very similar series about kids who had a sentient computer that helped them solve crimes. Right. He seemed to be doing very well for himself. And as I say, there is a Patrick Laborteau, who I, I assume is his brother, but I don't. That's me being very British. And they go, two Americans with the same surnames, <laughs> they must be related. But I think they look similar as well. But, you know, I, I hope J.R. Miller is being cool somewhere because J.R. Miller was so cool. I, this is another reason I don't want to visit it because he's probably just really annoying. But he seemed so cool to me. But I suppose there's only so many parts you can play called J.R., 
did they have a dog? They did. Boomer the dog, who later, yeah. I didn't make the oh. connection until years later, had his own series, Here's Boomer. It was a natural spin-off from the Red Tang Gang. It was shown on ITV and not the BBC. I think they only showed it once, but despite the number of times I saw the Red Tang Gang, it never occurred to me it was the same Boomer. So that's incredible. I mean, hang on. You can't just throw this in lightly. There was a spin-off from the Red Hand Gang, and it revolved around the dog. Like basically going around having adventures on its own. But I can understand somebody pitching a series of adventures for a dog, but who would go, but what it needs to be, it needs to be the dog from that series we cancelled mid-season. they just bought the dog and I didn't know what to do with it? Yeah, they trained it to answer to Boomer, so that was, that was all they could do. Maybe like J.R. Miller, he would only play people called Boomer. <laughs> oh, he, he will be no longer chips, with us apparently. now, sadly. Oh, really? But was there ever any effort to sort of marry up Boomer's appearances all into the same universe? Or, I mean, this could get very complicated. You know, did they have to do sort of little noises off, say, oh, Boomer, it's nice to see you. It's a shame that JR (laughs) can't be with you or something. An attempt to appease the fans by, you know, putting it all into one plausible universe. Okay, well, moving on to your second choice now, which is a record that if you're anything like me, you might have been a bit bothered by on one of the mornings you're actually watching the Red Hand Gang. I'm going to play the intro intro to this because I'm going to come back to why it's interesting in a minute. and the start of Einstein and Go-Go by Landscape. Toby, what was going on here? I loved this song, and this was at a time when if you missed a song, you didn't then hear the song unless you recorded it off Top of the Pops or bought the record. We didn't have any money. And I think I'd caught it on its last shot on Top of the Pops before it started to sort of go down the charts. And I'd got the image of, I think there's these figures leaving a house in long shot and they're in sort of CSO and looking slightly ghostly and it's the band. And there's a really sort of memorable sort of fluty pipey bit, which is the bit I really remember from the song. And I've always remembered that since childhood. And so then whenever it was on the radio, I'd sort of go and hide somewhere and go, oh, I, I love this song, I've got to listen to it. And it had existed just as a memory. And then, of course, when, unlike with the Red Hand Gang, when the modern era made itself known and you could go, I can just look up a song, I listened to it. And I was like, yeah, no, it is quite fun. But I hadn't remembered the telephone bit at the beginning. And then I thought, well, I'll remind myself of the video. And that bit at the end that I felt I distinctly remembered, I was correct with. It was a bit more kooky and out there the rest of the video. Because when you're young, everything seems sensible and, you know, grown-up music, you know, is done by grown-up and clever 
clever people but I think when I then revisited it when I was later it was people sort of asking about and being a little bit self-consciously avant-garde but I still like the song and I found the video on YouTube and then looked underneath it and there's a few people getting really furious with it because it was a genre they didn't like or for whatever and that amused me the idea that this I was just sort of thought I'd check out this song I quite like from my youth and it's something somebody has a really angry opinion really? on. Really? Well, <laughs> Welcome to the internet. It was a bit terrifying when you were that age. Well I thought it was a bit I think partially because of that one shot I'd remembered I'd remembered it being a bit sort of haunted housey but I was very young I mean I, you'll tell me what year 1981 apparently which surprised me because I oh. thought it was earlier than that yeah I would have thought it was late 70s rather than early 80s okay but I like it and I like that sort of pipey chorusy bit but it's all about well it's, a, yeah, it's Einstein a go-go isn't it yeah it's all about there's going to be a theme isn't <laughs> yes. there about our imminent destruction <laughs> so why did it terrify you just because of that because I kind of figured out what the lyrical theme was even at that age because you know it was all around you especially mainstream pop music that paranoia was just everywhere and I remember seeing them on I don't think it was Swap Shop I think it was one of the ITV shows performing it dressed as kind of like the people who were being given orders in the room with a computer in in inverted commas in Blake 7 and trying to look a bit menacing because there were those there were different sides of synth pop there was the looking weird but mainstream pop side you know the human league there was the dystopia sleaze side of things there was the oh you've got to be as clever as us you've got to be as clever as magnus pike to like this side and there were people like these guys who were just we are excited by the silicon chip and they were really acting up to that and it just seemed really unsettling on the sort of show where you know normally the kind of bands like on would smile for the camera i remember landscape not doing and then the lyrics were really quite freaky as well i mean the one thing i always point out these days is saying you better watch out you better beware albert says that e equals mc squared now is he a bond villain or is he a grange hill bully who goes around spouting equations because <laughs> it's a bit more booger benson than that but also as you say there is that telephone intro where they've tried to phone the white house to speak to jimmy carter probably to yes. say you know <laughs> don't start a nuclear war please and they've been told you can't speak to president carter now in between them recording that and it coming up as a single can you guess what happened mm, ronald no. reagan acceded to the white house so it's clever satire was already out of date <laughs> course i'd actually forgotten the phone call bit so when i did get it you know when you could suddenly get music wherever you liked and it started that phone call, so I, I don't remember this at all if i got the right song but then of course it kicks in so it was already out of date by the time it was released pretty much but i want to just say you mentioned liking the sort of pan pipey thing do you know what instrument that is it was something called a lyricon which is sort of a synth woodwind thing which was used on all kinds of things in the late 70s and early 80s it was later supplanted by more sophisticated things but that early they had like basically a synth saxophone and i think they're one of those bands where they seem to have interchangeable who played what instruments i think on this it's played by andy pask who went on to be a really prominent soundtrack composer who works on massive blockbusters even now but he also wrote the theme yeah. from the bill wow well it all mingles doesn't it but did landscape do any other records were they or uh, was it a hit it, even? it was I mean, where I think did it, it got in the top 10 they also had a slightly lesser hit called norman bates oh my name is norman bates now how funny because I would lump those two together mentally it was the sort of songs my brother used to sing that but I wouldn't have known they were connected unless that was something I'd put together and then forgotten that's interesting right okay that makes utter sense to me but I wouldn't have said it under questioning well I think 1981 
one was a little bit late for kind of futurism. So, you know, because you associate that with Gary Newman in 1979. And things already changed by that. I mean, I liken them to Blake Seven. I'm going to get hate mail if I get this wrong, but wasn't Blake Seven cancelled in 1981? Yes, I think it was. So all yeah. of that was yeah. on the way out at that point. And yet that's when they had their biggest hit. And I find that hard to reconcile apart from maybe, maybe they had just tapped into the public's attitude towards, well, what was in the news every day. That's the only thing I can think, apart from it, you know, being a catchy tune, obviously. Would they have looked old hat by that point? Because you think of bands like New Music, who were late 70s, doing that kind of, we are scary robots, or Kraftwerk actually being robots saying, we are scary men. It just seems weirdly late. Now, you see, you're a music historian, and I'm very much not. So in terms of the music, I wouldn't dare to make a suggestion. However, thematically, in terms of what the 1980s brought us, as we will discover, no, because people don't buy a record because thematically apposite, do they? <laughs> Generally, they bought it for the synth pop panpipes. Every period in history, you think you're at the apex of technology, don't you? And I certainly remember thinking the synthesizer and neon lights combo was probably about as advanced as we were going to be. I couldn't imagine technology getting any better than that. And yet, how quickly did that become the look of the hot shoe show on PBC Pong? I know, I know. There's nothing dates like technology. Well, that is quite a thought on which to move into your next choice. I don't really have any quips to go into this, so amazingly, I found a bit of continuity relating to it, so let's have that. And now introducing the third film in a week of programmes, 40 years after the bomb. Good evening. Last night, as part of this week of programmes to mark the anniversary of the atom bomb attacks on Hiroshima and Nagasaki, we showed you Peter Watkins' famous film, The War Game. A horrifying exposition you may have felt of the effects of nuclear war. But the political background to it is perhaps less convincing today. And so tonight we are showing what might be called the War Games 1980s successor, Threads. Okay, TV's Ludovic Kennedy <laughs> linking my two favourite TV dramas of all time there. Toby, what was after the bomb and why was he there? This is, I recall, you gave me the title after the bomb after I'd said I have this horrific memory <laughs> from childhood. What were they doing? Did the BBC decide to do a nuclear holocaust season or some such? I don't know whether it was because it was something to look forward to or whether you know they were celebrating the invention of whether it was Oppenheimer's uh, it birthday. It was the 40th anniversary of Hiroshima and Nagasaki. And rather than oh, showing oh, Hiroshima right. more and more, which makes all of the points in this in the context of a very dark romantic drama, they did this week of programming on the theme of the nuclear right, threat. Right, So it was a week, yes, because I'd got it in my head as a sort of season. The, the nuclear holocaust It was every season. night for a week, so yeah. But a lot right. of people go into bed not very happy, I think. Not only that, I mean, this was proper scared. I used to be allowed to stay up to watch universal horror movies and they got you know i got a little bit of a chill around the neck and i'd pull the duvet around the neck and i lived in the countryside and branches would scrape on windows and i'd think oh well, if i put my duvet around the neck at least when the vampire comes to get me he'll wake me up by trying to move the duvet and i'll be able to escape but you know I, there was part of me that still knew that that probably wasn't true you know i watched doctor who but i didn't hide behind the sofa i was thrilled by it i wasn't scared the nuclear holocaust season on the bbc absolutely terrified me and I was drawn to the war game, 
not because it was nuclear holocaust season, but because in the paper, I remember we used to get the Shropshire Star and I used to have to go and pick it up because, it, we, as I say, we lived in the country. So the way that paper was delivered was that a man would drive past on the main road. We were off the main road, about a quarter of a mile down, and would throw it out onto the corner. And you'd have to go and get it at around that time because otherwise it would get rained on. So I remember getting the Shropshire Star and I'd you know, pour over what was going to be on the television that night. And it said, you know, the war game. This was banned in 1969. So it was the allure of going, well, nobody's been allowed to see this. It's a bit like a missing episode with Doc 2. If something's just out of reach, you know, it has some sort of magic of sparkle. Of, and, you know, you always want what you are denied. You know, you always aspire to get that which is out of reach. I wasn't really thinking about the nuclear element, although that was big in drama and, you know, storytelling. And there were things like when the wind blows and there was Zed for Zachariah. So the, there was certainly a Nana's 99 red balloons. There was certainly a sort of subgenre of imminent Holocaust inspired. I'm glad it's all over by Captain Sensible, <laughs> which he predicted the end of the Cold War. <laughs> God. And also, and I brought this up on stage the other day, and there was a guy in the audience who, who was able to tell me, and I'm not quite sure why. I lived on a place called Clee Hill, which is in the middle of nowhere between Ludlow and Bridge North in Shropshire. And on one of the other hills, because Clee is old English for hill, so I lived on a hill called Hill Hill. <laughs> There was the brown clee, presumably because it was brown. I don't know what colour of the other hills were. And then there's the Titterston clee. I don't know what that meant, but that was the one that had a big mushroom on it. It had a big white mushroom on it, which was, we called it the radar dome. And so I remember when nuclear holocausts were talked of, I was like, but we're set, because in all these books, you know, you escaped if you, because they bombed the major cities. So the one advantage we had of, you know, not having another house for a quarter of a mile, being slap bang in the middle of nowhere is that you know we weren't a major population center but my brother he wasn't going to let that lie he went no 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 that radar dome is a genuine target but this is the brother that told me that elderberries would kill me and when i at someone said well they haven't killed me he said no no they stay in your system and kill you in 12 years time so i spent from the age of about six to 20 thinking i was going to die of elderberries but being too ashamed to tell anybody and he said no that radar dome would be a target so they drop a nuclear bomb on that and we die from the fall from that so there was that in one said and actually when I brought it up on stage recently this guy said and I said oh I lived in this place and there was this thing and he went yeah that's the one that's on the Titterston Clear it's a this now and it used to be a that and I was like I don't know how you know this but anyway he was very plausible and I quizzed him afterwards and I think it's because he used to work for the Ministry of Defence or something and I said so was my brother just winding me up he said no no that would definitely have been bombed <laughs> in a nuclear holocaust but the war game was shot in stark black and white documentary style I think Michael Aspel's in it so you have real people playing the news reporters and it starts off like a sort of public information film and it's got narration of saying and I remember the flash into negative to show what would happen if there was an explosion and then basically it's a very sort of starkly shot documentary of what happens when society collapses and I remember that you know there's an interview with one person who's a dad who says you know well we'd have looked forward you know wanted to look forward to my children growing up and that's not going to happen now because the inference is you know they've all been contaminated in the fallout so they're all going to die I think there's a bit where it's inferred some soldiers have shot either some of their comrades or some other innocent people who are beyond saving and it was pretty grim but because it's also from the old days it had that thing of being old and dark and you know black and white and, and so it had the kind of inherited horror of the universal horror films and all those programs that we watched that were old that everyone was dead from and all of that and I watched it and then I went to bed and I was so 
scared i actually went into my sister's room and we're not really that kind of sort of family where we open up to each other or anything like that and i said to my sister can i sleep in here tonight because i'm really scared and she very sweetly let me sleep on the floor of her room which i've never had to do for anything before or since and her words of comfort to me where i said please tell me that that's not going to happen and the best she could muster was well no it probably will but probably not for a bit and i remember thinking i suppose if i get to 21 i'll have had a decent life and I felt that that was all I could probably hope for because we were in the shadow of Armageddon and the BBC helpfully reminded us of this by showing things like the war game which I've never watched since and I have to say is the most terrifying thing I have ever seen and it deeply affected me. Well, there's an interesting me. detail about how it got shown then, which I'll come back to. But I think, looking back at this now, looking back at the whole thing, don't get me wrong, it was a real genuine fear that people had every day. I also think there was profit in scaremongering over it. And even the BBC, trying to do a respectful anniversary season, trying to treat it seriously, I still think this week, having it stripped across five nights, calling it after the bomb, you know, a lot of the rest of it was quite serious. A lot of debates. There was a documentary where Leonard Cheshire, who obviously was, you know, very heavily involved in the war effort, visited Nagasaki and apparently his conclusion... I've never seen it, but his conclusions were quite controversial. And there was also a repeat of threads, which anyone who yeah. follows me will know is a real bet in the war of mine because it invites such adulation for something that I don't think is quite as good as a drama as people make it out to be. And there is also additional myths around it. One of them directly involving this repeat which is it was listed as a revised repeat of some tv listings and there's always been this idea that it'd been cut and all kinds of things from the original transmission had been cut out and lost forever all it was was in the scenes with vicky o'keefe playing the daughter grown up yeah in the original yeah. cut there were some close-ups of her where you can see fillings in her teeth and the director didn't notice that until it was broadcast and thought oh she wouldn't have them and went back and re-edited ah. it for this repeat it engenders all these wild kind of rumors and hysterics where other better things have never been repeated. I mean, I won't go into this again. A couple of years ago, somebody who's got nothing to do with archive television wrote a column about threads for a newspaper in which they tried to make a conspiracy out of the fact that it had only been repeated, like, what, five or six times. I'm like, when was the last time you saw Joe's Ark, the Dennis Potter play? Yeah, or Deadhead. Anything like that. You know, there are all these series that never, never get shown, and sometimes the things that overshadow them. I also think it's about Ghostwatch. Admittedly, although that doesn't get repeated, often don't quite deserve that prominence over other things but that's a little bit of soapbox off me but I wanted to just say the main mover behind getting the war game clear for broadcast was the same person who the second he got in the position where he could speaking of Dennis Potter again scheduled Brimstone and Treacle for broadcast having been suppressed since 1975 Michael Grade now I know he's seen as the enemy oh. of any TV enthusiast because he cancelled Doctor Who when let's be honest anyone would have cancelled it in that position and he had the temerity to check that Brass Eye was legally possible to broadcast. He's kind of viewed as the enemy, but he's also got that streak of championing art. Well... I mean, even a broken clock uh, <laughs> tells the right time twice a day. No, I mean, I can, looking at the history of Doctor Who, I mean, I, for me, what angers me about Grade is the arrogance with which he dispensed his power and the arrogance with which he conducted himself afterwards. And there was plenty that could have been done to Doctor Who to revive it. And you try creating a series that, you know, creates resonant cultural iconography and blah, 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 you know, all those well-rehearsed things about Doctor Who. But it's much easier to say it's not Star Wars, can it? And then be a prick about it for the rest of your 
your life. But he's still a very good television executive in many other areas. And I think opening up the archive of stuff that has been withheld is a very interesting thing to do because it helps us measure where we're at where we've come from and as i say even what year is this 85 is it so even as an 11 year old i'm clearly there interested in the history of television because it was the fact that i was watching something that had been stopped from being broadcast that particularly lured me to it although i've you know i've always been interested in the sort of dystopian future or a survival you know post-holocaust survival because that brings up lots of dramatic potentialities and you always put yourself in the position of one of the survivors and how would you cope and you know that's a very compelling idea of storytelling that you can put yourself within or you know fantasize about if you like and i think there's something about the fact that it's newsreel and it's faux documentary it's peter watkins is it, is it peter watkins who'd done culloden it filmed the battle of culloden but like it was a sort of piece of reportage and newsreel and that sort of thing there's something interesting about news footage and although this is faux news footage that you don't quite get the fact that that man's telling a news camera that he's a bit sad about that he's a bit sad that's underselling he's sad about the loss of potential of his kids growing up or whatever is very different to seeing if you'd seen that situation played out amongst a family dynamic it gives it an extra sort of repressed emotion that gives it a slightly different it's a slightly different angle to telling the story because of the way we filter ourselves and the way that we speak to news cameras and the way that news cameras capture things in the way that dramatic cameras don't so I think it was a really clever and I think that's why it's almost scary because what we see on the news is real we believe what we see on the news so the fact that this is shot like a news report and i wonder if that's what made me stay awake at night whereas i think if i'd seen those scenes played out as though they were you know three people in a bombed out kitchen in a multi-camera studio it wouldn't have been quite the same i think it's interesting that the very fact that ludovic kennedy presented this week of programming because he's one of those sort of presenters that you just don't get anymore where the best way to put it is a friendly face on a very serious person because he had this whole thing about he presented things like did you see which is the bbc2 show where you know they go behind the scenes of ever decreasing circles and then a.a gill or somebody would talk about how they hadn't liked eastenders (laughs) he did things like he presented a life in pieces where peter cook was interviewed in character of sir arthur streep griebling about the 12 days of christmas but he also had this very long career of campaigning over miscarriages of justice and writing books about police corruption and so on he seems a very incongruent these days they would have somebody like i don't know nagam and shetty maybe would introduce something like this but it was considered the done thing in those days late on but still primetime bbc one get a very serious man in there not just because he was a man because he was serious i think yeah but i like that i yearn for those days where instead of saying not only in our presenters but in our presenting we have to come to you i much prefer the idea of going here's some somebody really clever who knows their shit shut up and listen to them and I do not mind having deference to people that know more than I do and I'm happy to put myself in their hands if they're able and educated and Kennedy yeah he was one of the wasn't he I think we liked him in our house because he was an avowed anti-capital punishment man wasn't he and you know in the mid 80s lest we forget society was very polarised and you know it was sort of Kinnock versus Thatcher which is a right wing conservative party and a left wing Labour party if you vote labor you want nuclear disarmament you know there were very stark choices and the country seemed very divided on are you for nuclear or not i remember those i remember we had 
had quite a radical teacher at school because he had the nuclear power nine dank or whatever car sticker on his car and that was seen to be oh, quite controversial for a teacher to do that and there were often votes weren't there to reintroduce capital punishment there was stark polarization on issues that would have had a genuine alteration on society had they gone one way or the other it was quite a scary time i mean i was 11 so i was scared of everything you know i was scared of the older boys at school and, and all that but i seem to remember having but this may be my personal disposition quite a knotted stomach for quite a lot of the 80s and it seemed to me that you know we were on the precipice of this that or the other oh sting sting had that song <laughs> didn't he yeah. the russians <laughs> i mean now i'd sort of think i mean the russians could use sting as an excuse to bump but then it seemed like he was being very wise well uh, that's something <laughs> i you know with being very interested in music and comedy from that era one thing i've noticed is there's nobody really trying to find even the bleakest of bleak humor in that whole situation comedy shows like well, as we talked about last time who dares wins or alfresco or even to an extent the young ones when that comes into it is when they get relatively serious you know like kind of there are no jokes in this and nobody really did funny records but my overriding memory the cold war is something that made me laugh which is you know had that conveyor belt of very elderly russian premiers and then for yes. months and months they would be circulating the illusion that you know say chenyenko was still alive and well and then you'd see a report on the bbc news saying speculation is mounting that mr chenyenko may have died some weeks ago and it cut to a bloke in russia saying no 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 he very well see he do dance it was like weekend at bernie's and that's the thing i remember most is laughing about something but didn't they spoof that in whoops apocalypse where richard griffiths is the russian premier and he dies and they basically yes. somebody absolutely the other way and they, <laughs> and they yank him off and and replace him with somebody identical so there was whoops i remember there was whoops apocalypse but i remember it was when we temporarily had a video that my brother very optimistically got and didn't pay to rent so it had to go back but i remember him getting out the film of whoops apocalypse which had been different to the series and i didn't see the series too much later but that seemed very grown up because that was a that was a satire about uh, nuclear holocaust and actually when i did watch the series many years later it's i think it's absolutely fabulous i'll be fair there were things in the 60s like the bed sitting room that tried to oh yeah some elements of humor out of it but i think it was just so all-pervading in the early 80s that nobody felt like being funny about it no no it was a genuine concern it was a genuine sort of potential potential horror i still remember that aching stomach and that real fear and yeah as i say the, the best my sister could come up with was that it might, might not happen immediately dear god i mean i i'm very grateful that my mum never sort of stopped us watching anything and it's how i sort of got my education in television you know we, but it did come at a cost <laughs> Okay, well, it feels very weird saying this, but your next choice harks back to a kind of more innocent, earlier iteration of warfare, I suppose. That's the best way I can put that after that discussion. Has your clear sounded? Of course. How can you tell? Me mum's taking the case with the insurance policies and the bottle of brandy. She wouldn't go out with them if it wasn't all clear. Ah, oh, I hear idiots. Yeah, where you are. Do you like them? Yeah, they're all right. You couldn't get war so many years without them. But the Brown's got a better collection than you. You shut up about Bodzer Brown. He's got a nose cone off an anti-aircraft shell. So what? Where's me ma? Where she always is on the lav. Okay, bit of dialogue there from Children's BBC's 1983 adaptation of Robert Westall's The Machine Gunners. Toby, what was this? Well, again, I have snatched memories 
of it was one of those things that again seemed terribly real and gutsy and i think that's maybe because and this is going to sound odd but it had regional accents didn't it it had i lived in the countryside in the middle of nowhere so i was surrounded by sort of you know country folk and farmers and everyone in the nearest town sounded a bit like i do with slightly more shropshire vowels but this was a time when if it wasn't on telly you didn't really see it the first time i heard a liverpool accent was in brookside do you know what i mean because there was a lot of rp talking going on on things as well you know i just remember the machine gunners with these sort of and i think because a lot of war stuff that i'd read had always been sort of quite sort of sanitized boys only sort of stuff but to see kids and i was a kid when i watched it and to see stuff going on in the uk and i think it's about a group of sort of urchin lads who discover a and it's based on a book isn't it because i seem to remember it being in the school library and, and it was a new version of the book because it got a picture of the lad from the tv series on the cover and they find a crashed german plane is there a german pilot in it as well and i just remember at the very end spoilers everybody it seeming to be a really uncomfortable ending where somebody who shouldn't have been shot got shot and the kids seemed quite sort of pragmatic and you know downbeat about the whole thing and it just seemed like the most grown-up thing ever even though it was a kids tv drama but there was stuff like that at the time there was also noah's castle which was an itv drama that seemed very grown up and it was largely about stockpiling after an economic collapse which is the sort of standard children's television fare that you have in which general hermack from the space pirates essentially tries to groom the daughter of the house and the dad kind of goes along with it because he's got cigars and is quite a high up figure in the social hierarchy but i was always quite excited by stuff that was children's television but that seemed i was desperate to be grown up as a kid it's odd you, you know as a grown-up you go god i wish i'd enjoyed the childhood side of being a child more and, and not been in such a hurry to do all the grown-up stuff that soon loses its sheen and comes with other responsibilities and distractions and actually my god there's no better time to be alive than when you're a kid and you should just enjoy being a kid well i don't think i made it to the end of it from what I remember because first of all it wasn't as exciting as something like the Breadtime Gang let's just put it that it was more traditional fur for, mm. for children's BBC but also to me it felt part of that I think it was a post Falklands thing but do you remember how heavy people tried to push an interest in the military on young boys in the early 80s it was, the big thing was you like the Red Arrows I'm like I'm absolutely no interest oh to think about Harry is in this <laughs> I don't care. It kind of felt, because a lot of it was about sort of Earthix kit kind of military hardware. It kind of felt parcel and parcel with that. And the main thing I remember about it was Sean Taylor. I think the character he played was called Chas McGill. He was on Saturday Superstore and he seemed very unhappy about being there to promote something where he played a boy who was much younger than he actually was. He did not right. seem best pleased about <laughs> it at all. Also, that it was liked by, do you remember the kind of boys you got in school who would read Soldier of Fortune magazine and had camouflage jackets. It yeah. seemed to be more up there street than, I don't but, know, something like Codename Icarus or something. Yes, I think my taste, my personal taste was always towards the more fantastical but when something seemed a bit sort of rough and tumble, all the kids were sort of kids that, you know, seemed to have scabs on their knees and, you know, torn elbows on their shirts and, and because it was also it was, I'm imagining, I think it, it feels to me like it was a sort of 16mm Houston film type film stock which always seemed 
to me a little bit more grown up than stuff that was more indoors and set in the studio. I'm thinking now it was probably a mix of studio and film, was it? But I particularly recall the outside stuff. And doesn't one of them have a pistol? And the idea of a kid having sequestered a pistol from somewhere and walking around with it, it seemed, you know, very clandestine. That seemed absolutely outlandish in those days. It was like, that was the sort of plot you get in an episode of Juliet Bravo or something. Yeah, absolutely. And I just remember it. I think I was the opposite of you. I don't think I watched the beginning of it. And I think I came in towards the end. So maybe between us, we did the whole series. (laughs) I think as well, it was very much of that sort of thing where I haven't actually been able to find the opening titles at the time of recording. So I don't know for certain. But it seems the sort of thing that should have had each letter of the title. No music, but... And each letter coming on. Oh, yeah. <laughs> Probably in that stencil font as well, the military stencil font. Absolutely, yeah. If you've stolen a gun, maybe you can call <laughs> the machine gunners. That very dour ending I remember sticking in mind where I think somebody nice got sh- Or was it the German pilot? got shot there certainly seemed to be an injustice about it that it was an unnecessary death you know that could have been avoided because there was yeah mistaken identity or they've misjudged the person and yeah there's a lot of that in those sorts of programs not enough that somebody dies it's somebody dies through sheer rotten bloody luck or you know bad coincidence or something like that and maybe that's why that particular instance sort of stuck with me as a kid because i had a terrible sense of injustice you know that was usually meted out on me it's just not fair so maybe that's why that's why it stuck with with me. It's also one of the very last BBC Children's productions in that style because obviously they had the relaunch in the mid-80s where everything went on to video really, including outdoor scenes it all became, you know, the identity yeah. became jazzier, you got Philip Schofield stroke Debbie Flint initially, people forget that in the broom cupboard, oh, there's more pop music, more kind of modish design things just got a bit jazzier really in general, and there wasn't really I say there wasn't room for series like this, they still made them, but made them in a very different way as though they appreciated that children might actually be watching rather than their parents well it is because i always thought film stuff seemed a bit more grown up so i can see why they would go let's go for the slightly cleaner more colorful pictures of videotape because film stuff it also seemed to enhance anything that had a period setting which then did sort of distance you slightly from the drama there was one called r john willie yes i do yes yeah it wasn't a lot of that in regional dialect Uh, yeah i see i remember the ending to an episode of r john willie where they're doing something and the woman comes in and she goes well because she's caught them doing whatever it is they're not supposed to be doing i remember that i don't remember who the woman was i don't remember what they were doing but i remember that she was a bit cross she just caught them and it was our john willie there we go that's been in my head all this time but i've only just i let think it our john willie may have been deaf mute and everyone around it was sort of war the minds be mine today or that's something along those right. lines oh dear carries war that was another one wasn't it war's future and past hung heavy on your <laughs> 80s childhood didn't they <laughs> well we're about to move into a sequence of programs which have kind of bracketed together because they were completely removed from all of this they were almost completely other direction and they were probably, given the timing when they were on, not aimed at you. But let's just have the first one first.
Well, yes. Can I explain? When my dad sort of just basically went away and never came back, I was the youngest of four and I was four when that happened. And we lived out in the countryside in the middle of nowhere and we had nothing really. So my dad had been a medical man. He'd been, he was a doctor. So a charity that usually looked after bereaved doctors' families decided we kind of counted. because, And so they paid for me to go to a local boarding school so that my mum could go back to work and not have to worry about getting me in and out because my older brothers and sisters were a bit older and could go on the school bus so I was away from home and only came back on Saturday nights and I loved telly so I watched everything that was on on Saturday nights and in the holidays so a lot of these that I'm going to mention were probably on a Saturday night or during a half term or something like that and now somebody write in and say no no this one was a bit later on but I have them all in my mind of just programs that we all watched that sort of stick in my head as ones that we sort of talked about and the first one and it may be because the first one is and this was all I think shot on film was quite forward thinking in its depiction of sort of young love and sex and it's called Annika and the theme tune is this sort of mournful sort of pipey type thing is it was it Colin Nutley did he write it or direct it the actress was called Christina Rigner and I remember they made a big thing of it was her first television and Jesse Birdsell who later became Marcus Tandy in El Dorado and he was in Bugs is the guy is he called Mick or something it's a guy who's sort of kicking his heels in is it Brighton or somewhere like that and there's a trip of young Swedish teenagers and he falls in love with this girl Annika and then he goes in episode two he goes to Sweden and they continue their love affair there I distinctly remember Leslie Schofield being in it (laughs) I don't know why I remember as a I don't know you're going to tell me what year it was but I remember there's a scene where he goes into a sauna where all the young Swedish people are there's four of them two lads him and another lad and two girls the other lad's called Tobjorn and he goes in with his boxer his swimming trunks on and they haven't got any clothes on because they're Swedish so he goes out embarrassed takes his swimming trunks off and goes in and they've got their bathing costumes on because they were tricking him and then he goes out again and and anyway and then they all run into the river Starkers which was quite an eye-opener for me as a young man and it seemed like we were watching something really adult and then one of their mates gets pissed and goes off on a motorbike and he is killed and I remember genuinely thinking the actor had died because there's a shot of his face and it's a bit mushed up and you know part of me went god did they actually kill him for that because again I was young and stupid but I'm remembering all of those images and moments and it just seemed it was just clearly a very effective sort of story of you know star-crossed lovers it it never quite worked out but you know he did his best and I remember her Swedish family being very very welcoming and it was just I guess just a three-part love story and in the end you know he went back home and it didn't work out it was certainly very memorable because I've just told you lots of things about it. Well it was ITV in 1984 and it was actually set on the Isle of Wight. And the reason to bring that up is because when I was uh. reading up about it, in one episode, there's apparently a scene set in a club where the band playing live in it are the Waltons. They are an ironically named anarcho-punk band who John Peel was very big on. And when I read that, I genuinely, I kept reading and thought, I'm gone. And like my eyes darted back and forth between what I was reading. I could not believe somebody put the Waltons on primetime ITV. Because I say this in the nicest possible way. They were 
bloody racket. <laughs> they must be the only local band that were available. Or this series was going for something a bit different. I seem to record it was, if it wasn't quite heavily plugged, it was certainly much talked about. Doing things like this is a constant reminder that my mother, in terms of the sort of culture that we were allowed to assimilate, was extremely liberal. I mean, I remember watching Carrie when I was about, whenever that was on telly one Christmas. So I'm grateful to my mum for not being bothered by those sorts of things that some parents might have been because I've you know I have friends who tell stories of you know having to miss stuff or, or having to sneak to watch stuff you know in a clandestine fashion we were pretty much allowed to watch anything I think maybe because I didn't get to spend that much time at home and there was an acceptance that you know I was happy if I was watching telly because I sucked in you know popular culture and telly and it's the stuff that I remember you know I don't remember birthdays but I remember weird ITV love stories which again it's not even my genre particularly but it made a huge impression because I remember so many bits of it and I was always quite chuffed when Jesse Birdsell turned up in something else and I did look up some years later Christina Rigner who was Annika and I don't think she ever did anything else ever again and you often think I wonder what you know somebody's had to have done something ever since I wonder and I wonder if they go do you know I had my own series once I mean she went to said it like that she's Swedish not everyone talks like a 50 year old actor reminiscing but they do if I play them well you also remembered a quirky love story from Channel 4 from exactly the same year which amazingly I've managed to find the trailer for <laughs> Angie, it's Mal, are you there? What's the matter? I'm pregnant. I was under the impression I was the only person going out with you. Happened before I met you. Oh! You wouldn't know his name. Try me! I don't know his name. You tell everybody it's my baby, yeah? It's my problem. And I'll have to sort it out on my own. The baby's gonna be adopted. You can't be serious. I'll have to kill, all right? It'll be taken away. We won't even see it. As far as anybody's concerned, you got pregnant and we got married. Okay, well, that was a trailer for Winter Flight. Toby, sounds like this was a little bit similar to Annika, but a little bit not similar as well. Yeah, why am I remembering these things? But again, it goes back to, we must have talked about actors in our house because this was Reese Dinsdale. I think we could never decide in our house whether he was called Dinsdale Reese or Reese Dinsdale for ages. Terrific actor, now also a director. And Nicola Cowper. And I remember both of them later turning up in episodes of Bergerac and us being very pleased because they were those two people in that very I seem to recall it being quite a sweet love story. It's called Winter Flight. Is there an RAF element to it? I it's can't remember. It's something like he's a young RAF. don't know if he's a cadet right. or he's a fully fledged airman, but that he's bullied a lot on the base, but he falls in love with her. And does he agree to look after a baby she's had by someone else or something? It was part something of Channel like 4's first I... love strand, which the only thing anyone remembers for that is Batang Yang Kipperbang. But they did loads of Oh, them. yes. And they yes, all had yes. this kind of unusually for early Channel 4 upbeat tone, or relatively upbeat, should we say. Yeah, and I remember them being both very sort of sweet people that you wanted to do okay. And again, as I say, I think the only reason it sort of lasted in my head is not so much for much that happened within that, but the fact that it had been memorable enough and we'd all watched it clearly as a family that it was a thing that we did that whenever one of Nicola Cowper or Reese Dinsdale turned up in anything else, we must have done it with 
dreads as well. Oh, it's that nice man again. I uh, hope he'll be all right. Nicola Cope was also in Swark on Channel 4 very early on, which nobody remembers. That's right. Which is a now, spoof team. That's got Prunella Scales. Yes, as Aunt Has Patty. Prunella Scales in that? Yes, I remember that, but only because it had Nicola Cowper in it. And it had the sort of stroppy, altered image style theme song, which I think if anyone does remember it, that's what they'll remember. And it means sealed with a loving yes. kiss, doesn't it? That's why I remembered what that was. But I only remember that Nicola Cowper was in it and Prunella Scales was in it and she was some sort of, yeah, sassy, agony auntie type woman, was she? So having nominated Winter Flight, I can't say much about it apart from that it was, again, a sort of quite sweet well, love story. Well, a couple of interesting things, which is lower down the cast is a very young Sean Bean. Reese wow. Dinsdale often talks about how much he loved making it on Twitter. And also, this is the best thing, it was directed by Roy Battersby, who obviously had previously oh. been quite a big BBC director and suddenly wasn't. And it turned out later well, wasn't he, black? he was one of the people that had their personnel file marked with a Christmas tree as the intelligence service Yes. Where anyone considered, you know, subversive, meaning they didn't like Margaret Thatcher, basically, had their file imprinted with this little symbol. And obviously, I imagine people like John Nathan Turner, the Doctor Who showrunner, did, and all kinds of people who seem to disappear from the BBC. What I wonder, though, is now this will take some explaining for a lot of people who listen to this who don't know that much about Doctor Who, but as you will well know, there's a missing story from the 60s called Mission to the Unknown, featuring an alien that yeah. looks like a Christmas tree who nobody knows anything about, who appears to have never appeared in any subsequent episodes it was supposed to be in. Now, did Sentriol's <laughs> personnel file because he looked like a Christmas tree that was stuck in for that? And so they ah. incinerated the episode. They destroyed all of the paperwork with him in. Ah, oh, so right. So yeah. So they didn't. They didn't think it was a picture of him. They thought it was a mark <laughs> against his name. <laughs> Yeah, absolutely. I remember it was quite controversial, wasn't it, that Battersby was hired for Between the Lines because he directed some of the episodes. Of the, had Tony Garnett basically, did he just basically break the BBC rules and go, well, no, we're going to have him? Well, you wouldn't have to worry about any of that if you had much in common with the main characters in your next choice. And again, amazingly, I found a bit of continuity for this. Oh, well, now, on one, we come to episode two of the serial Strike It Rich. Stafford continues his hunt for the missing Bentley shareholders and is about to visit the Pierce family. Baxter is still trying to catch up with the elusive Kelly. Susan Morgan has told her husband she wants a divorce, and Jeanette Maine has found her lover with another woman. While Jack Kingsley thinks his fortune is made, Tim Boyd, unaware that he's worth a fortune, burns his share certificate. That was Strike It Rich, not the Michael Barrymore quiz, although that started almost exactly in the same week as this. Toby, explain to me why this isn't Michael Barrymore. Now, this and the next one definitely fall into that camp of I was only home on Saturday night and you watch whatever is on. And I watched Saturday night telly from the beginning to the end. So, you know, there would be not necessarily at this time, but that's why I watched Alf Weed is Aim Pet and then Spitting Image was on. Basically, you went, you know, you went through the night diving between BBC and ITV. We tended to be BBC. And there were these dramas that nobody talks about that you can't find very much out about these days. And there was this one, Strike It Rich, which I seem to recall. It had Tom Adams was one of the stars. And I remember he gets caught in bed at the very beginning with a half-naked woman. And that's it's like, God, this is a bit blooming grown up again, you know. And I think he was a sort of roister doisterer. And it was about a group of... And Victor Winding. Victor Winding was a guy who, who was a lovely actor. 
lovely twinkly actor Victor Winding and I think he'd been charged by some company to go and track down a load of people who'd got shares in some company that had suddenly been floated or something that meant that whatever they had that they either didn't know they had or was pretty worthless was suddenly worth a shit ton of money and their lives completely changed I seem to recall it was a sort of disparate group of people so it's quite a good idea for a story whereby you get different people at different stages in their lives suddenly come into a load of money and how does it affect them I seem to recall there was one guy in it who was a wheelchair user as well and I seem to recall also the second series being a big gear change from the first and it never quite feeling like quite the same series I recall David Saville turning up in it as a character called Jerry Hapgood and the reason I remember that is because my mum had a friend from nursing college who was called Hapgood and she always told the story she still tells it which means she probably told it every week when Strike It Rich was on that Hapgood's nickname was Happy but when my mum first met her it was their first night away from home at nursing college and this woman this Welsh woman is weeping and my mum says I, I, you know hello I'm Jan who are you and she goes I'm happy <laughs> But of course she wasn't because she was crying. That's my mum's story. Um, so that's why I remember Jerry Hapgood. But I remember it being David Savile and going, oh, he's you know, Lieutenant Carstairs in The War Games and Windsor in The Claws of Axos and Colonel Crichton in The Five Doctors. So I think it's quite a good idea for a drama, anything that has sort of disparate characters. I think John Stone is in it as well, who was in Quatermass 2. I wouldn't have known that at the time. And it had a theme tune that went, I'm not going to sing it, but it went, strike it rich, strike it rich. One day you're going to strike it rich. Yes, it was an absolutely dreary power ballad. And it was bizarrely released as a single by BBC Records and Tapes. Now, they released some oh, weird really? stuff over the years. Nobody knows that better than me because I've listened to it all. But I don't understand who listened to that and thought, people would rush out and buy that after watching. You know, because it, genuinely, it was a great series and it was quite a hit at the time. But I don't think anyone would have been buying this record on the back of it. But it later sends up on compilation of like 20 best TV themes, like 20 most licensable, surely. And I'm imagining the titles, which I haven't seen since whenever it was. At the time, they probably seemed quite exciting and powerful. And now I imagine it's lots of ill-advised paused videotape which they seem to do a lot in the 80s. And when you look at it now, you go, that looks terrible. And it must have been that we could pause now without tracking going up and down. So it's like a freeze frame. It's not like a freeze frame. It's paused video. It looks dreadful. And I can imagine, and probably they'd got hold of one of those machines where, you know, you have a series of sort of snapshots and, and shoot in. I, I imagine it was a bit like, that looked quite exciting then and would not look good in the cold light of day. Are you aware who the writers were on Strike It Rich? No, I, no, I know nothing about it apart from what I've... You. Just told you. Joe Waters, NJ Crisp and Eric Pace, who were all guys who worked on oh, a lot really? of things like ITV detective shows in the 60s. But in the 70s, they were yeah, the yeah. big names on the big BBC film dramas like All Strike North and Warship and Squadron. And it's obvious that, you know, they've fallen for favour a bit and TV drama had gone down a different route. And it's like they're coming together. Rolling up to Steve saying, right, we'll all show you. We're working together on this one. It does somehow wow. lend that kind of bigness of what the BBC did so well in the 70s, taking a simple concept like an oil rig 
heartbreak and making it into a big drama. That with the modern style, because you have got, like you say, the disparate group of characters. Like, isn't one an antiques dealer who's in debt? There's a criminal on the run from kind of underworld figures. Then in the second That's series, right, there's a criminal as you mentioned, replace it with a new one. I think there's a woman who finds the shares amongst her husband's papers. Because that it was share mainly around then, because they were selling off BT shares. I remember kids buying some. There was, if you see, said telling British course. gas one. Also, yeah. there's a teenage girl in Kerr who somehow winds up with some of the shares, played by a very young Julie Graham. Ah, is she just in the second series? I think it's a great pitch. As I say, I haven't seen it since. But I think to go, we can have whoever we like because these shares could have ended up with anybody we want. And what impact does that have on their lives? It's a really good pitch for a drama. I like it. Well, well there's an even weirder name in the cast list. Gary Tibbs. As in Marco Merrick, Terry Lee, Gary Tibbs and yours truly. Yes, the bass player from Adam and the Ants was in series one of really? Strike Rich. Oh, really? Playing what? One of the family of one of the people with shares. I think it's there was a family where he was just a decorator where the family were quite a happy family and they just said, well, we'll have big holidays and so on. And he was one of them, I believe. Right, so you're going to have to have me on again because last time I had a drama with John Taylor from Duran Duran. <laughs> this time I've got a bloke from Adam and the Ants. Next time, you know, if, if somebody from Kajagoogoo was in a primetime BBC drama, that'll be what I'll be picking. <laughs> okay, well, the last of these four... Again, I found some continuity for and a little bit of the theme tune because I don't think we really need to hear much more than that. In 50 minutes, the return of New York cops Cagney and Lacey. That's after Jen and Donna, who are on the final stage in achieving their driving ambition. Okay, driving ambition, Toby. This is proper Saturday Night Telly from the 80s, isn't it? I'm glad you played the theme tune because my mother could never get over the fact that the credited singer was called Lackadaisical because, of course, there's a word, Lackadaisical or whatever. So obviously every time that she went, she's not going to be really called Lackadaisical. And when my mum's being funny, she adopts a sort of lisp that she doesn't really have. I didn't know that because I didn't know the word Lackadaisical. I just remember that being something that very much tickled my mother. And it was, again, another of those things that we watched because it was there because it was on and it starred the wonder was it written by paula mill paula mill whose other credits included well she created angels the bbc nursing drama but around the same time as this she also wrote well she wrote swark as well with nicola cowper it's all linking up this ah, but there we go she wrote the drama drama yeah. the exorcism of amy that really creepy one also the gemini factor which nobody remembers which is a children's itv thriller with a very young louisa yeah. millwood hague and charlie creed miles it was 
was a double barrel name fest, but oh. that I remember really loving at the time. It's impossible to find that gosh, now. Louisa Millwood Haig looked like she was going to have a stellar career, but I'm, gosh, I haven't seen her for years. But Paula Mill, yes, so she was one of those people who's, we, I think we liked it, or I liked it, when you saw names pop up on different things. And I'm sure, you know, NJ Crisp, I think he was on a couple of book spines as well. I think it was nice to see those names sort of cross-fertilising different stuff. So, And obviously it was rare to have a woman's name on a part of the credits, on a prominent part of the credits, you know, in terms of as writer or director. So that probably also hit home a little bit. And it was about, this is all you needed in those days, it was about somebody wanting to be a racing driver but it's a woman wanting to be a racing driver. And the woman in question was a wonderful actress who I don't think is celebrated enough, Rosemary Martin, who I think was a superb actress. She's brilliant in Tenko. She was lovely as a sort of batty lecturer in, an, in a Cracker series. And I can't remember what it was that made her want to do it. But anyway, she decided she wanted to become a racing driver. And does she ask to help her, a guy who's got a garage, who I seem to remember is somebody that had had a heyday and is now a bit down on his luck but certainly somebody with whom she probably had a slightly terse combative slash mutual respectful yes, relationship the brilliant kind of name ken lark played by gavin ken lark! Who, and it's gavin richards I'll be yeah, on, let's be honest about this gavin richards around that time had the stock in trading characters of these kind of mustached blokes who everyone mistakes for a bit of a badun because he's quite flash and potentially a bit sleazy but then it turns out to be the good guy after all yeah but he and now i can't remember if it was before or after this but he he was a bit of a legend in our house because at Channel 4 time, they showed a televised version of what had been the stage version of the English adaptation of Dario Fo's Accidental Death of an Yes, Anarchist. which Emma Burnell talked about and looks unfamiliar, yeah. Ah, really, which has, well, which has a brilliant character called the Maniac. Who's a you know who's a master of disguise who pulls the wool over the eyes of these stupid police people? It's a virtuoso part, and I had a great time doing it at the Edinburgh Fringe many years ago. And it was partially inspired by the fact that it had had such an effect on me and my brothers when we'd watched it. I think just happened upon it, so we loved Gavin Richards for that. To many, Gavin Richards is Terry from EastEnders, but he had a long history with us before that made him a sort of household name. And yeah, Ken Lark. That's a brilliant name. Yeah, he was a sort of grubby garage mechanic who I think had maybe been a racing driver himself or had maybe been... I think been... so, and he souped up her mini, didn't he? Yeah, and she'd got a mate, and I can't remember who that mate was, and I think she snogged Ken Lark in one scene, and I remember that being a bit, oh, crikey, but that's all I remember about that. And I remember a scene where Rosemary Martin is looking at a telly, because people did this in dramas a lot then, you never see it now, looking at a telly in a shop window and watching a story on the news about a young racing driver who's been killed. And of course, that's her going, oh yeah, this thing that I'm doing is, you know, potentially very, very dangerous. I think the title sequence, and remember it seeming a bit more comic strippy in terms of the sort of font and indeed the music than at the time it had seemed like, you know, everything dates, doesn't it? And I was much younger. Yeah, it seemed more sort of Grain Chili vibe in the opening titles than what I'd remembered. I'm just wondering, though, you mentioned a bit where, like you say, this used to happen a lot, that she chanced upon a television in a television yeah. shop window. One thing that always bugged me about that when I was a kid was, well, it still happens on the rare occasion you get TV shows when TV shows now, is when you think, you know, say, for example, I remember there being on Grange Hill, a scene set after school had finished in Roland's house with his father 
where finger bobs was on the television. And it's obvious that, you know, they put on the television while they were filming it and just used whatever was on the BBC because they had the rights to that. But none of these things fit time-wise. And I remember, which Doctor Who is it? Where Army of Ghosts, isn't it? Where Richard Dawkins is on the Saturday evening at prime time. It's on television when the Cybermen start appearing. <laughs> like, well, I don't remember Richard Dawkins' Saturday Night Takeaway. <laughs> was always out of phase. Everything that they showed. I'm wondering if it was supposed to be mid-afternoon and she's watching, you know, the news. The 9 o'clock yeah. news. Because I remember an ep- you mentioned Angels. I remember an episode of Angels where the titles for Blake 7 were on. Well, it was, again, very memorable. But as I say, I had Saturday night only in front of the telly. So I was watching everything that was on. I'm just going to give you one guess who the technical advisor on Driving Ambition was. Oh, God. Uh, James Hunt. No, Sterling Moss. Sterling who, Moss. At oh, that point, was kind of like a TV personality, despite not really having much of a personality. Yes. He had an electric house, didn't he? Where, like, robots brought things to him. Was he the Ali Bongo of the driving world? If you needed a magic <laughs> advisor, you got Ali Bongo. If you needed a driving instructor, you got Sterling Moss. Okay, we might think that there were high-speed sequences involved in driving ambition, but you haven't heard anything until you've heard this. Out falling in love by Lick the Tins, and I've forgotten all about this until you mentioned it. Toby, when did you hear this and how? On the bus every day, because the school bus took quite a long time, and so we had Radio 1 on in the morning on the way there. I seem to recall it was played quite a lot in the morning on the way to school, and I think it's because it featured in a movie. Is it in Some Kind of Wonderful or something like that? It's in Some Kind of Wonderful. It's also in The Snapper. Ah. The little remembered sequel to The Commitment. Yes, I remember The Snapper because it was Colin Meany who was in Deep Space Nine at the time or Star Trek The Next Generation at the time. And I remember being amazed that this guy from Star Trek was in The Commitments. It's a lovely version of the song and I love the singer's voice. And I, of course, I never saw the video for it or, or what they looked like, and I still never looked. And I think there's a real purity and sort of childlike quality to the singer's voice. And I think it's a lovely version of the song. But also, when I did, in adulthood, when I did try and get hold of it, I think I first bought it on iTunes, but I could only buy it as part of the soundtrack for some kind of wonderful or something. And then, for some reason, that wasn't on iTunes anymore, and I got a refund. And then I thought, well, I'll, I no, I'll, I'll get you, I'll, I can handle this internet business. So then I bought the Some Kind of Wonderful soundtrack either off eBay or secondhand off Amazon or something and it came and then it went missing almost immediately when I was living in London. So then I ordered it again and then about three months later realised it had never come and I'd looked on my thing and it said it had been delivered and it never had. 
So for some reason, it seemed to me determined never to allow <laughs> itself back into my life. And I actually did get it. I hooked it up on Spotify the other day. It's got lovely pipes. And I like a cover version that brings its own character to a song. And I think, and I, you know, I like the Elvis version. I like, you know, it's, it's a great song in many different forms. But I think this iteration has its own charms and its own unique style that none of the other versions have. And it's really nice to listen to. And it's really lovely and clean and innocent and quite jolly. Because it was in a film, I always associate it with, because there was the song that was in, oh, I think, my God, were they called Ben... I can't say it now. Were they called Mental as Anything? And they had a song that was featured in Crocodile Dundee. And actually... Yes, live it up. Hey, yeah, you with the sad face come up to my place and live it up. But then when people saw the film, they went, well, I mean, they say it's in the film. It's played on the radio for about half a second in a scene. (laughs) But I always associate it with that because that was also quite a nice song from a bunch of people you never heard of before or since that was associated with being in a movie soundtrack. Because I don't remember Lick the... I couldn't even remember their name. Is it Rip the Tins? the tins i don't know what that means it's a weird name which i think is one of the things that conspired against them apparently they themselves after a local tramp which you know it kind of indicates the sort of i don't know the kind of attitude they were going for but i think when it came out i thought it'd be the bigger hit than they had been but it was the middle of 1985 it got to number 42 so already at that time you know you got live aid overshadowing everything if you're doing this kind of music in the mid 80s you're up against the pogue so you got your work out for you and the other thing is it ends with that kind of Irish real yeah. gig. The reason for that being they didn't intend it to be a single. The record company heard it and said, are you out of your minds? But it was too short. Oh. So, like Weather With You by Crowded House and Outdoor Miner by Wire, it had to be made longer oh, how to become a viable hit single. People don't realise that about Weather With You. It only does the everywhere you go at the end of the song on the original version. Oh, wow. Well, I didn't know that. I didn't know that about Lick The Tins. But did you say it got to number 42 it did yes i seem to recall it being on radio one in the morning all the time how bizarre how bizarre because my friend john who's still a friend of mine was a big john hughes kind of guy but i think i experienced john hughes's films more through john talking about them than actually seeing them i don't think i've ever seen st elmo's fire i saw the i don't know if that is john hughes but you know those genres of sort of misfit kids movies that were around at that time i think i did see some kind of wonderful and i certainly saw the breakfast club but my association with that song is more to do with the school bus than it is to do with my friend john's sort of enjoyment of those teen misfit movie type things and unrequited love businesses. There seems to be a really weird band lick the tins because I don't know if they have more than one album. The album this was from was called Blind Man on the Flying Horse, which has got what purportedly covers of Hey Joe, as in, you know, the song that yeah. Jimi Hendrix had a hit with, and Get Me to the World on Time, which was by an American garage site band called The Electric Prunes, which was a very minor hit in the UK. I think it just scraped the top 40. But both of those, while being ostensibly covered, they barely do any of the original song at all and it's very very I can't quite work out what they were trying to be and they seem to have had from what little information's out there a quite disharmonious relationship ironically given their music was quite harmonious about the direction they should be taking I think possibly one of them left mothers in the I say in the charts but you know trying to get into the charts and I think timing was just against them full stop well I hope they're happy my brother was the one in our house that had records we had lots of the pose 
Pogues, but the Pogues swore and again were political. So they seemed, you know, the sort of thing I shouldn't really be listening to till I was a bit older. Maybe Lick the Tins was my gateway drug into the Pogues. They're kind of like, I'll describe the sound as if the calls stayed out longer than they were supposed to on the school night. <laughs> it's still playing out in the street I, at 8pm. I do love the quality of the singer's voice. There's a real sort of clean and sort of innocent charm, clarity about the singer's voice that I remember that that lends itself to this particular version of the song. I just think it's a lovely version of the song. Well, it's better than the UB40 one, let's be absolutely clear. Yeah, I think think it's lovely and and I don't think I'd get the opportunity to talk about it anywhere else other than here. So (laughs) I'm happy just to use this opportunity to say it's a lovely version of a song by some people who sound nice. Okay, we're coming on to your last choice now, which is something else that came and went in 1984. One day I were locked in this here tower Eating golden wonder oddens And I were thinking so hard about getting home for another packet That me head grew sore So with this saw, I cut through bars and escaped from the tower I shouted Taxi. and shouted Taxi. until my voice grew hoarse And on this horse, I rode away until I reached an endless wall Well, I were in half a mind to turn back and half a mind to stay Two hours make hole so I climbed through all, and then I saw a swarm of bees going buzz, buzz. So I caught buzz, and I went home. New Golden Wonder Oddens are rather unusual, oddly enough. Okay, I hadn't seen this advert since the time, and I remembered every word of it without realising I did. Toby, Golden Wonder Oddens. Now, we know your story about the cabana bar and how you never actually got one. Did you actually get to try Oddens? I did, but only once, and that thereby hangs a tale. And I remember seeing the advert, and when he goes, and I caught buzz because of the buzzing bit, thinking that was the funniest thing anyone had ever written, thinking that was amazing. Oddens, we have a personal... Did I tell you when I pitched this idea to you what my personal connection with this is? Countryside, middle of nowhere, no hint of showbiz in our family at all, except I have an uncle who went off to art school and became a film editor. And as a result, he lived in London. And they did things like, they were the first people we knew that had pesto. And that was the days when when you had pesto, it was one spoonful that went through a massive bowl of tagliatelle, which is a pasta they had in the old days that seems to have gone out of fashion because it takes up a lot of space on the shelves. But it was spaghetti was pasta number one, tagliatelle was pasta number two, and everything else either was rocket science or hadn't been invented yet but anyway so my uncle John in London was the sort of person that he'd been in a lift with Tom Baker very exciting but his then girlfriend now wife and partner of many 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 years was a graphic designer and she had not only had something to do with the then new label of HP Source, but she, when we went to visit them in London, was working on a new crisp called Odden's and so we saw the packet before they'd actually gone into the shops because she'd got a a trial version or whatever not with crisps in but we saw what she was working on the wheeze of the design was it was like a Gordian knot or a you know if Isha had made a crisp shape that's what was on the packet it depicted you know a potentially impossible shape I seem to recall was what the design was on the front cover and then we saw the advert when they came out oh that's Gabby's crisps so then we definitely did go out and get I think just the one packet because they didn't last long and were they quite fun flavours were they like cheeseburger flavour or baked bean flavour or something like that there was salt and vinegar cheeseburger and barbecue bean barbecue what bean. actually is that I don't know that doesn't make any logical sense I think that's like Yahoo serious festival <laughs> I think we must have had the cheeseburger flavour because, again, the idea that you'd have a crisp that tasted like a burger was rocket science. 
And actually, quite recently, those pop crisps that they did, they did cheese and bacon flavour that I thought were absolutely gorgeous. They've discontinued them. It makes me very, very sad. That's a recent tragedy. So I think we had one packet of Oddens because we thought they'd be around for a bit, but I don't think they lasted very long at all. No, they really didn't, as far as I can tell. I don't remember them being around for very long. Everything you can find says 1985. But it seemed to me a perfect combination because it was crisps, quite fun flavours, and an advert full of jokes... And a packet, one designed by my sort of aunt, and two with impossible... You know, it's kind of going, these aren't crisps. These are crazy crisps. And as a kid, you go, craziness and crisps. That's like having sweets that can sing. You know, I was always impressed with the swizzle stick because you could eat it. Do you know what I mean? Anything that did more than one thing was amazing. And also the colour scheme, very modishly, is somewhere between a swatch. Do I have to explain what swatches were now? Probably. They were kind of like designer watches with flashy colours on. And the Rubik's Cube and Rubik's Magic and so on. It was kind of an amalgamation of both those. So it was very timely. And I think there's a big campaign where you could send off a kind of trapezoid mugs where... The joke was they were odd mugs because you'd only get a tiny bit of tea or coffee into them. (laughs) The only information out there now, really, is ironically on Doctor Who websites because they were part of that promotion of having Colin Baker mini comics in them. Oh, really? Because I remembered those, but I hadn't remembered... I think they came with Watsits and things like that as well. But yes, yeah, the only Odden's scans, I don't say scans of crisp packets that are out there, are these Doctor Who Well, how funny that I've never made that connection because you would think that Doctor Who, which is the dominant force in my life, if its Venn diagram was to cross over with a crisp that was a crisp that we had a familial connection with, you'd have thought that would have resided somewhere in my head, but it doesn't. So that's interesting. Were they Golden Wonder then? They were Golden Wonder. And there was that drive around then to try and do basically high-concept extruded maze snacks where, you know, everyone just wanted monster points, they wanted frazzles, but there were things like Smith's did crispy tubes, which were famously only available in Ready Salted. That was kind of weird because that was promoted as a sort of back-to-basics thing. They didn't work, so they rebranded them as tubes and loops. They didn't work either. Walkers did bits of pizza, bits which... Bits of pizza, I remember, didn't yeah. Didn't take off. They just didn't seem to understand that people weren't going to be swayed. They just want to stuff these things in their mouths. They weren't interested in the psychology <laughs> behind it. And that's how you get things like the massive fanfare there was just a couple of weeks ago, like Caramel Twirl. And now they are being sold off for 15 pence each in supermarkets. Oh, really? And yet you see the Monster Munch where you just go, it's a crisp, but it's got a monster on the front. I go, well, that's enough for me. But I suppose they got the flavours right because I know the flavours of Monster Munch have changed over the years. But the Monster Munch is the maze snack alchemy, isn't it? Well, it is. In fact, tying it back to your first choice, in Tricks of the Mind, Darren Brown recalls an anecdote where he had a bag of Monster Munch in the playground and it was one long, uncut Monster Munch. Oh. And he, he was a bit of a playground hero because of it. Wow, he'd got a sort of mutant Monster Munch. <laughs> You have a mutant monster munch given what they are and what they represent is. But nowadays you'd sort of go, you know, should I eat this or should I preserve it? Because it could become a collector's <laughs> item. I remember it being a kind of, not with a bang, but with a whimper suddenly that they, you know, they'd gone. And I think we said to my, oh, do they, they're not doing them anymore. And she went, no, you know, they were not a success. And it was rather sad. And now, I mean, I can't, I remember like, I remember we did like them. Oh, these were very nice. and But slightly yeah, odd. But perhaps the world was not ready. Perhaps they were just too avant-garde for the ultra-conservative crispy-archy. Like Vincent the, by Don <laughs> The crispy-archy. <laughs> 
but at least you could put a name to them. Whereas there were a couple of things you wanted to mention just before we go, which is one was an unbranded powdered fruit. Well, I say unbranded, but you just don't know the. Brand. Well, no, there were lots. I th- this now you see these were much more common. I thought, but when when I mentioned them to anybody, people go, "I don't know what you're talking about." But again, because I was having to go away to school for some reason, sweets were frowned upon. But you could sort of cheat, and I don't know whether we were cheating the authorities or whether it was just parents. It was just mum cheating. Go well, I haven't given him sweets. I've given him a vitamin fruit drink. But in those days, instead of squash, which I don't know why, maybe they took up less space, but you would get drinks, fruit drinks, in powder form, and you would put them in the jug, and then you would fill them from the tap and stir them, and that's how you sort of rehydrated the drink. But therefore, in their unrehydrated form, and I remember there was a particular brand that I think was quite high-end that I particularly liked, because as well as the powder of the apple because it was an apple drink, it had slightly bigger white blobs of powder that seemed to be the vitamin C or something, but they were sharper and they made your tongue all rise up and, you know, do that thing where you get sort of blistery ulcers. And it was like, you'd use it like you would, you know, angel dust or whatever those, you know, sweets were you got from the penny sweet shop if you got the one that was basically coloured sugar. But this was coloured sugar that was dehydrated fruit that was designed to make up a fruit drink. And it was good contraband and currency at a boarding school because it was kind of... Of, well you make it into a drink but also you can stick it under your pillow and stick your finger in it and suck it like sweets and as i say our parents were in on it because my mum i think mum got it from health food shops and so maybe it was just an unspoken thing of going yeah this is effectively your sweets but i as i say i mentioned them to people and people look at me as though i've gone mad well i tried to find out if i could put a name to them brand wise and the thing is the results that kept coming up were the american ones funny face and kool-aid no. and i know there were going to be people replying to us on twitter saying oh it's funny no. face it's kool-aid it wasn't because they weren't available over here and i remember seeing and things thinking what no. the hell's root and tooth in raspberry what's that big jug and it's only when they read american comics and Oh, so it was something else. It was more kind of it wasn't Beecham's, but it was a name like that, I think. And they were much more grown up than that. They were not razzmatazz. They were not aimed at kids. You know, they were. They, was it was it called sort of Sunrise or something like that? And was the one beginning with A? And, and I'm sure there were lots of different brands. And I think it's a genre of food stuff that has just been forgotten. But they were for that time where having stuff that you could sort of reconstitute, sort of space age kind of stuff, seemed quite sort of normal and of course it would be longer lasting than anything fruit based and perhaps it was slightly healthier than squash or seemed slightly healthier than squash because i don't think you know it didn't taste like juice where it did taste like a sort of juice drink i think but it wasn't wacky you know talking about the american ones that you've talked about they seem a bit sort of like oh we're trying to come to you and be fruity for kids this wasn't that at all this is families this is sunshine that you put in a jug yeah but certainly it's yeah it's the sort of thing you'd put in a jug at a family barbecue in the summer or something like that you know but as i say that that nobody seems to remember and there seems to be no evidence of so perhaps it was a mass hallucination and it was really just orange cocaine and the other thing you've described to me as basically an orange bag filled with water now are you sure this wasn't just an orange no bag these these were massive they were called they were like leeches but they were so they were long like a sausage but they were orange and luminous orange because anything cool in the 80s was luminous and they were like these bags but they were shaped did we call them leeches but they were sort of sausage roll shaped but they had a sort of hole in the middle that you could stick your finger in and they were like worms but you could squeeze them and they changed that but basically they were things you sort of threw to your mates and they were i'm not sounding they were a craze they were a definite craze because 
everyone at school had them before me as happened with most crazies and then i finally got one because we used to meet my grandparents at a little town halfway between their house and ours and they'd buy us lunch and one of the shops there had them and i remember telling my i think my my nan or my mum that you know these were the things that everybody at school had so i was allowed one and i think maybe they were on their way out and they were a bit you know a few quid had been knocked off or something or maybe they weren't actually that expensive but anyway i got one relatively late in the day and pretty much as soon as i got back to school and i never got to the bottom of whether this was true or not or whether they just stopped being trendy or cool but there was a rumor went around that because of where they were manufactured the water inside them was dodgy and so that they had to be returned so i remember the next time we went back to that place i and it was terrifying for me but i was made to do it i was if i wanted the money back i should go to the shop and actually i remember the woman in the shop being very nice and refunding me so i didn't have this thing for very long and when i did get it it was sort of on its way out and you can't remember them but they were orange i think they might have been green ones as well those sort of luminous colors and they were they were like bags of water but shaped like sort of thick worms and you threw them to each other but you had to catch them before they hit the ground otherwise they might split open and they might break but they were quite stretchy and malleable but also they had that sense of danger that if you damaged them you know all this water would come out and they'd be ruined so you could be quite rough with them but also not too rough and they were a thing they were a thing they were definitely a thing the orange bags filled with water but you know open brackets you had to make your own fun in those days kids close brackets well i'm hoping somebody could put a name to both of those but in a way i'm hoping they can't put a name to orange bag filled with water <laughs> because that's as good as somebody has told me the proper name now of those spidery octopus things that roll oh, down yeah. windows it is not as good as those spidery octopus things that roll down windows that must remain their names it's so much better i hope that's opened up a memory in somebody's mind of what it was like in a more innocent times when catching an orange bag filled with water gave you a sense of purpose well you know what you should have got a jr t-shirt instead <laughs> <laughs> so it's been brilliant Thank thanks you. mate Top of the Box Volume 2 by Tim Worthington. The story behind every album released by BBC Records and Tapes, from Play School Play On to Russell Grant's Zodiac Jukebox. Comedy, sound effects, show tunes, folk, singing soap stars, the BBC Radiophonic Workshop, and more albums of Birdsong that you ever knew was possible to exist. More details at timworthington.org. Well, we've had a few people get in touch, and I'm very grateful to them all. I can't name-check them all because time has now passed, but George Off of Rainbow was one. George Off Rainbow on Twitter, who told me that Arcadia is the name of the short film, you know, with the computer game set in a dystopian future. Uh, It was a Channel 4 short from 1990, which features Pat Haywood in the cast. Uh, George also pointed out that the puppety one... Uh, that I mentioned, which I was pretty correct with. Um, apparently none of the monsters are referred to by the names they have in the Universal Horror Films due to a copyright thing, but they all look that way and they're all puppets. And some some are voiced by Boris... Some voicing work is done by Boris Karloff himself and everything else is done by the same, the same one guy. Uh, and it's called Mad Monster Party. Uh, quite a few people got in touch and knew what that one was and uh, directed me to a trailer 
uh, which confirmed, yeah, it's Mad Monster Party. That one's quite well known, I think. So apologies for my ignorance there. Arcadia, less well known, but a few people pointed that out. But George Off Rainbow gave us both. And then we'd kind of given up on everything else. And then just as this episode was about to go to press, uh, Jan contacted my website and said that the movie with Lieutenant and Lieutenant um, and some other sort of vague fragments that I suggested... Uh, it's called Assault on a Queen, and I've had a look. I can't find the whole movie online, but there's a trailer and a few bits and bobs, and it looks right. It's a Frank Sinatra movie, so again, probably quite well known, uh, directed by Jack Donahue, Donahue, and it's got uh, Verna Lisi in it as well. So my confusion as to why there would be a woman in a warm movie of, uh, you know, uh, amongst the action, a civilian woman, seeming character, um, uh, actually fits with that seemingly anomalous thing as well so i wonder if my uh my image of the final scene um uh, is is correct as well so yeah i, I haven't been able to 100 percent confirm that but it looks and feels absolutely right that it's a movie called assault on a queen so i've had three things confirmed thank you to everybody that uh that got in touch sorry i can name check everybody <laughs> 